Good to see you. You want to just get right into it? All right. There's no doubt, there's no doubt that money, do I have your attention? There's no doubt that money can get in the way of things. Uh, having it, uh, not having it doesn't really matter. Uh, it can divide families, it can sever uh, friendships, it can drive people to uh, lie, cheat, and steal, and in the extreme, money can even cause people to commit murder. It fuels greed, envy, and jealousy. And the big problem, of course, is not money itself. Money is neutral. It's, it's just a thing. But the Apostle Paul helped us to see what the actual problem is in 1 Timothy 6.10. Uh, notice uh, the, what does it say? Uh, the love of money. It's the love of money. It's not money itself. It's the love of money. Notice, it's a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, the craving for the love of money, that some have, notice, two um, pretty challenging effects. One, have wandered away from the faith, and two, pierced themselves with many pangs. That is to say, that second one, uh, the pangs, the piercing themselves, twitches and spasms uh, through the love of money have just caused themselves a lot of pain. And then that first one, uh, some have even wandered away from a profession of faith. I believe this, I believe in Jesus, I'm part of this, but the love of money drew them away from that uh, profession of faith. Now, all of this is relevant to the passage in Luke's gospel that we have in front of us uh, for this uh, weekend, uh, because we're about to be introduced to a rich man. And his conversation with Jesus, this man is actually called a ruler. Uh, he was um, a man of some standing in his own uh, community, a man who wanted to know how to, and these were his words, how to inherit, inherit eternal life. He's asking the question, how could I come into a relationship with God? How can I know I'm going to heaven when I die? How can I be saved? That's a great question. It's a great question for anyone to ask. And I would pray and hope that everybody in this room has asked that question and found the answer to it. For this man, the pinch point on the answer would be his love of money. But for every single person, there is a pinch point. There's, a, there's something that gets in the way of your ability to get into a relationship with God. There's something that's hindering that from happening. Something that keeps us from salvation. Now, I don't want us to get hung up on the fact that for this man, the principle in this story, that for this man, it was money. Because it's not the same for everyone. Some of you might be tempted to say at this point, oh, it's a message about rich people and how they get saved, and therefore, because I'm not a rich person or money's not an issue for me, that this isn't going to be a problem for me, and so this message isn't relevant to me. How often does that ever happen here? Like, never because you know that what we're really looking at are a series of principles, and Jesus is laying something out for us that we all know this is going to apply to me. That I can swap out the money for something else. 
What's the pinch point for you? What's the thing that's standing between God and you having a relationship with him? Or having a thriving relationship with him? Maybe it's a relationship that's in the way. This relationship with this person, I know it's not healthy. I know it's not what God would sanction. But that relationship is more important to me than the one with God. A lot of people go down that road. A way of life, the pursuit of a career, the pursuit of sports, just more important. I'm willing to sacrifice anything for sports. The church needs to be convenient, but sports I'm willing to give anything for. The pursuit of education, another degree, another level, the pursuit of entertainment, the pursuit of hobbies. You get the idea, so many things can get in the way of us having a relationship with Christ. And so, if you're here today and you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, the question is rather obvious. How could you inherit eternal life? What's the pinch point going to be for you that you would need to overcome in order to have that relationship with Christ and inherit eternal life as we're seeing. And if you're a professing believer here, this isn't just a message about salvation. This is really, how are you allowing anything to hinder your relationship with Christ? Are you a professing believer? And is there anything in the way of you persevering in your faith in order for you to get to the very end? What has to get out of the way for me to inherit eternal life? That's the question. So let's read the text. This is Luke 18, beginning at verse 18 through 30. We'll read the text and then I'll pray for us. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there's not one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we are dependent on you in this moment to help us grasp these scriptures and the implications for our lives. And so, Father, what we need once again, because we put so many obstacles in the way, our own assumptions, our own fears, our own desires, our flesh wars against us, what we need right now 
is your Holy Spirit to come into this place to once again convince us of the truths we're hearing and convict us of the things that need to change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You agree with that? All right. So let's, uh, let's go after this. Uh, to inherit eternal life, I must first set aside time to discuss it with him. It's an obvious first step. Uh, the uh, framework of this whole narrative is around the uh, issue of money. And so I've kind of framed up the message similarly. Imagine that you're wanting to make an investment. And, and so you're sitting down with a financial advisor. The first step in actually investing money is to sit down with someone who knows about the investment and who can guide you and direct you in the right way. And so that's kind of the way we're going to look at this. To inherit eternal life with God, I must set, set aside time to discuss it with him. I have to hear about the investment. And this ruler, uh, this, this rich man, he's uh, likely a synagogue leader, like an elder or a pastor, a little bit more than that because he's a community leader and the synagogue was the center of community in their towns, villages, and cities. And so this is a man of some standing in his community and he comes up to Jesus with this question. And this is happening for those of you who were here last week and heard the message uh, just before this. He's coming up to him right after the encounter with the parents and the children. Remember this from last week? And Jesus pointed to the children. He said, don't hinder them from coming to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, the rather shocking part, unless you become like a a child, then you won't be entering the kingdom of heaven. That is rich man, presumably, he's heard all this. He watched the whole thing go down. And now he's asking his question of Jesus almost as if he doesn't believe that that applied to him. Okay, I get that maybe other people are going to have to come to Jesus like a child, but I'm a ruler, I'm a community leader, and I'm a rich man, so there must be some kind of special dispensation, kind of some special considerations that would be given to me. So it's like he didn't even hear that whole part of it, and now he's asking for the exception. What must I do, he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus seems to ignore the question. And how often does this happen in the gospel? Don't you wish that you could just ignore some people's questions? And I want to be like Jesus. I'm just going to ignore questions. Jesus ignored questions because he doesn't really go after the essence of what the man is asking, though it's a very legit and good question. Because there's something more important he needs to address first in the text. And you see it right away in verse 18, where he starts by addressing Jesus as good teacher. Good teacher is what he says. You see it there. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Now, if we wanted to give the man the benefit of the doubt, we would just say he's a respected man in his community. Jesus is a rabbi who's come into his community. And so maybe it's just a term of respect and he's just trying to, you know, show that respect to Jesus. And that could be it if we were giving him the benefit of the doubt. We would even maybe say that uh, this um, religious leader, this, this ruler of the synagogue, maybe he had uh, read um, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. 
And so he's just trying to be nice to him right up front. The cynical side of me, by the way, and I know that that's been a super helpful book and so many people have read that and used the techniques from it, but the cynical side of me says that the title of that book should be How to Get What You Want and Manipulate People. Good teacher, because I get the sense here that what this rich man is doing is he's trying to curry favor with Jesus. This is like a lot of flattery towards Jesus. And I want you to say something nice to me about how I can get eternal life. So I'm going to front that with saying something nice about you. I'm going to call you good. And Jesus was not about to be all Dale Carnegie, you know, so he wasn't buying it. And Jesus wanted him and us to know Something very simple here, you just can't throw around the word good. You can't just be slapping it onto people with no thought. It's an important word, it's a weighty word, it's a meaningful word. And I want to say something about that for a minute, and is it okay once in a while I just kind of vent and have a little pet peeve session? Is that all right if I have one of those right now? I know, those are probably your favorite, right? So... Um, Sometimes, um, I'm not really super given to angry, but, but some of the times when I get the most angry and upset at things, I'm sitting at funerals. Not for the obvious reason um, of being upset that somebody has died, and that's really tragic, obviously, and can be very painful, but a lot of the time it's because in the funeral service, and, and particularly th this is true when it's a believer's funeral, and you sit there for an hour or so memorializing the person and there can be so much more emphasis on the person than on the Lord whom the person loved. And, and so that can really kind of get in, in my head a little bit and I don't really especially like it when that happens. I'm not saying that we shouldn't give tributes to the people, I'm just saying that the emphasis needs to be on Christ if the person loved Christ. But at funerals, that was free, but for, for, at funerals though, so we're going through the lineup to, to, you know, and the casket is there and, and the family and you're greeting them and all of this and you're talking to other people and it's, it's awkward. There's some of the most awkward conversations you ever have at a funeral. And, and this is what we often hear. She was such a good woman. He was, he was such a good man. Isn't that true? We, we say that. Now, why, why do we say that? Well, one... We, we could be trying to convince ourselves that it was true. It could be because it's not respectful in our minds and our culture, not respectful to diss a dead person. So we just say that they're dead. Uh, it could be because we don't know what else to say. I mean, there's only three or four things you say in a funeral home. It could be that we're hoping that people will say that about us when we die. But mostly, and this is what Jesus is going to get at, mostly, it's because we still fall into the trap of believing that we need to be good to get eternal life. That was the error this rich man was making. But keep these words in mind. I hope you'll remember this the next time you're at a funeral. Look at it right there in the text, right at the end of verse 19. Think of these words the next time you're in a funeral service. No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. And so what Jesus is really doing here by questioning 
the, the very way that the man addressed him, what Jesus is really pointing to is the sinfulness of humanity, the, the, the depravity of each one of us. I mean, he's going to answer the man's question because it's an important question. And that's why Jesus came was to answer that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But first he wants the man to think about what it takes to be good. Because this is exactly where, where he and everyone else and you and me, this is where we struggle. So Jesus says to him, verse 20, you know the commandments. Now Jesus is about to cite five of the 10 commandments. Are they random? Of course not, it's Jesus, nothing's random. Very intentional. These ones, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. This is the part of the 10 commandments on the second, what's called the second tablet. It's, it's about the, um, you could say it this way, in the great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is to love your neighbors yourself. You could put this a title over these five commandments. These are the love your neighbor commandments. These are about the horizontal relationships we have with one another rather than the vertical relationship that we have with God, which is really the focus of the first tablet. And so the, this, these are the love your neighbor commandments. And Jesus already dealt with all of this back in Luke chapter 10 when a very similar question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life was asked by a lawyer. And in answering that question, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and here's what the point of that was. And the point of this is, citing this second half of the Ten Commandments, that your love for God will be evident by your love for people. Your love for God will be evident by your love for people. In this man's case, he didn't love God because despite the fact that he's going to say in a moment, I've kept all these commandments, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't love God because he didn't love people. He loved himself and he loved his money. That's where this man's affections were. But he says, verse 21, all these, these five commandments, I've kept these from my youth. And again, Jesus kind of just ignores his answer because it was obviously untrue. I mean, this man has made two very critical errors in this moment. The first one is this. He thinks that he's been good and has actually kept these commandments, which no true believer would ever claim. Anybody here who genuinely has Christ would never claim to have kept the Ten Commandments or even be keeping the Ten Commandments. You might have the Ten Commandments even hanging in your home. But if you're a true believer and you understand this, you know that the Ten Commandments are uh, they're, they're awesome to have in your home and they're awesome to be something that you aspire to live out because they reflect the moral character of God. But you also understand that the Ten Commandments were given to us so that we would know we broke them and therefore would be driven to our need for forgiveness from Christ. That's what the Ten Commandments do for a true believer. Not this guy. He thinks he's keeping them. And so the, the first error that he's made is really a practical, moral error. 
in thinking that he's kept them. The second error is a theological error where he thinks that good works are the thing that saves. And of course, they're not. And so this guy, now we've been studying Luke's gospel for a while, but now he joins a cast of characters who believe these errors. Back in Luke 15, we were introduced to the, the, the one lost sheep, but remember the 99 sheep who had, quote, no need of repentance. What? Have you ever known a human being who didn't need to repent? Of course not. The 99 needed to repent just as much as anyone, but they thought they were fine. Later on in Luke 15, we have the story of the lost son, the prodigal son. And the older brother, he thinks he's all that. He stayed with dad. He's so faithful. He's so awesome. But by the end of the story, the prodigal's gone off and squandered everything, but come back repentant. The younger son's in a far better place than the older son. And then just a couple of weeks ago in Luke 18, we saw this Pharisee and he comes into the temple during prayers during the day and another man's there, a tax collector, and the Pharisee's prayer is, God, I just thank you, I'm not like other men, I'm not a sinner like this guy. Every one of them thought that their own righteousness, their own goodness was going to save them. And it wasn't, and it wouldn't. That was a really long first point, don't you think? And, and, and some of you are looking at the notes going, he's got four more. It's all good. So we can commend this man for having the discussion with Jesus, but listen, he really fails to hear what Jesus is saying. And it's essential at this point that we take the things that we've now heard and we do a cost-benefit analysis with this information, a cost-benefit analysis on this inheritance that is, uh, that is potential for us. Now, a cost-benefit analysis, if you're in business, you get what this is. It's, it's really simple to understand, of course. It's a weighing scale. This is from The Economist. It's a weighing scale approach to making business decisions. All the uh, pluses, if we could think about a scale here, all the pluses or the benefits are put on one side of the scale. If we do this, this is going to be the benefit over here. And then all the costs or the negatives are put on the other side of the scale. And if the costs tip the scale in this way, in other words, the costs are really higher than the benefits I'm going to get, I just wouldn't do it. But if I look at my cost and, and the benefits are greater and the scale tips this way, I would say, you know, that's worth doing. That's a cost-benefit analysis. Whichever weighs the heavier wins. And the man already knows the benefit. He's already had the discussion with Jesus. The question was clear. What must I do to inherit, on the plus side, eternal life? So I'm putting eternal life on this side of the scale. But now Jesus is going to tell him, here's what you need to put on the cost side of things. Here's what it's going to take as you do the analysis on all of this. And so look at verse 22. Here's where it comes out. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Eternal life on this side of the scale. Now over here, for this man, go, sell everything, give it all to the poor, and follow me. Okay, now the man's going to be left. He's going to watch the scale to see which way is this going to tip. 
Now, before we get to that, let's lock down what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is not saying, because when you start to hear these words, go and sell everything and give it to the poor, that sounds to me like something I would do to earn something. That, does that not sound that way to you? Like it, it sounds now like it's works based a salvation. And um, we know, of course, that salvation is uh, by grace alone can't earn it, don't deserve it. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. I feel like I've been saying that a lot lately. And Jesus is not suggesting that the act of divesting of his wealth is what, Jesus, is what actually saves him. He's not saying that. The moment at which faith is exercised and he inherits eternal life is the come follow me part. Do the other thing, that's the obstacle that's in the way of the relationship. But the following me, that's the act of faith. And that's the call to salvation. Now, the cost, let's talk about that for a minute because that just seems like a lot. I mean, we, we read, and I would just guess no one in this room when they came to faith in Christ sold everything they had and gave it to the poor. So what's actually going on here with this, this rich man? Is Jesus overreaching? But in fact, as you read the Gospels and understand the nature of what Jesus is saying and how shocking this is to his hearers over and over again, none of this should be surprising to us. The call to follow Jesus is a call to live what Philip Yancey called a radically dissimilar life from the one I lived previously. Now last week we talked about children coming to Christ or us coming to Christ even as children. And when we think about the radical shift that happens when we come to faith in Christ, you think about kids coming to Christ and the change is often not very perceptible. Even if a child accepts Christ in their earliest years, when we baptize them, we usually hold them off until grade seven, so around 12 years old is when we start baptizing kids here. And we ask them that question, how has your life changed? Like they're 12. They haven't even had time to do anything. And so for a child, it's really difficult for them to discern, how has my life really changed? But listen, this is, this is what changes. It's the trajectory of their life. It's what's coming that they're going to avoid. And that becomes awesome when you start to think about it. You know, Cheryl and I um, have three kids, what I call the children of our youth. And uh, we've now added or adding three more children, the children uh, not of our youth. Um, as they each get married, two of them are married and, and uh, you guys are getting married in five weeks. Cameron's right here. And um, so our three kids were so blessed. All of them trusted Christ as their Savior um, in, before they were seven years old. So I checked all this with them. Um, and before they were seven, all three of them trusted Christ as their Savior. And, and so now I think about them all in their 20s, in their early and mid-20s. And I think about, this is what you need to think about. I think about where their life could be if they had not trusted Christ when they were seven. You know what I'm saying? I think about other 20-somethings. I think about the struggles they're having who don't have Christ. And that's what the grace of God does. It's hard to say to a seven-year-old, how has your life changed? Because it pretty much has not, not in any substantive way, but it will change. 
It will be very different. Now, that's a childhood conversion, and I'm so grateful that, for that in my kids' lives. I'm grateful for what God did despite our parenting, that they would come to Christ. But when an adult comes to Christ, there can be years of accumulated weight and burden. There can be sin and shame and guilt that's crippling. Poor choices compounded on top of each other, baggage that you've been carrying for years and decades. And it can be so much more challenging to come to faith in Christ in the midst of that. But when you do, and this is what Jesus is saying, go sell everything you have. This is representing a quantum shift, a radical shift in how you've been living till now. That's what Jesus wants us to see. And so in the moment with these wholesale changes, the moment that I'm truly safe, my time, my money, my life is no longer my own. If I love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my love for things, my selfish desires, all of this will be dealt with ruthlessly. And the problem for the rich man was that he didn't love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved money with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And whatever it is for you, just put that in the blank. I loved blank with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. He had no room for God and it played out in his inability to surrender his, his wealth. And so to go back to the illustration, eternal life is put on the plus side, the benefit side of the scale and on the cost side, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the scale went like this for him. The cost was simply too high. It was simply too high. Verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Robert Stein, one of the commentators I'm using through this series said, you could write this down, the love of money is a terrible burden. What crack cocaine is to one man, sex or power to another Money was to this man as it is to so many others. And like a drug, these things dull our senses and make us resistant to the message of the gospel. The incredible inheritance that lies before us with Christ is dismissed with little consideration. We simply love our preferred drug more than we love God. And when I think of the thousands, and I mean that number literally, the thousands of people who have come in and out of this church in our various locations over the last 17 years, who came into this room or a room like this one, who sat and heard the word of God and who were so captured by the worship and by the people and by the preaching and by everything that was going on and professing faith in Christ, they became involved and joined a small group and got involved in serving and said that this was the best thing that happened to them. And then over sometimes weeks or months, they drifted away 
because it took them a little bit longer than it took this man. But over time, they were doing the cost-benefit analysis. And the cost for them was simply too high. And they walked out the doors, never to come back again. And for them, in essence, what they were saying was, and this is shocking that anyone would say it, eternal life's not worth it. Eternal life's not worth it. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And again, this is familiar. We've, we've heard this before in Luke's gospel. In chapter 12, Jesus said, where your treasure is, whatever it is, it doesn't need to be money, but where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Whatever it is you treasure Verse 13 of chapter 16, no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And so do the cost-benefit analysis. Weigh it out and see that eternal life isn't worth more. And, and as, as the man walks away, Jesus then turns his attention to all the other people who are standing there and watching all of this happening and listening. His desire is to help them and to help us to realize that this is an exclusive offer. It's easier, Jesus says, verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, first of all, I don't know if you've heard other preachers preach on this before, and sometimes I've heard this before. Some preachers will say that this is about a gate in Jerusalem that was, had really low entrance and it was hard. Camels had to kind of like bend down and crouch and crawl. It was, that, like it was a low gate, so it was hard. It was hard for a camel to go through this eye of the needle gate. And um, that's, a, I don't know if I can say it this way, that's a crock. So um, this is, that was a speculative interpretation. It was something someone, some preacher somewhere cooked up. And uh, this is a metaphor. It has nothing to do with a gate in Jerusalem that's small. Um, it's an expression, in fact, that's used in various cultures, uh, not just in the Bible. This isn't the only time we see this expression uh, that really stands for something that's impossible. And so this was a very cultural thing. And so in Israel, uh, the eye of the needle, think about it, a real needle and the little eye and how that's just like the smallest of openings. And the camel was like the largest mammal that they had that they could think of. And so the expression was, can you get a camel through the eye of a needle? And of course, that is impossible. It's to set up an impossible situation. If we were to Canadianize this, we would, we would say um, it's impossible for a moose to go through the opening in the top of a Tim Hortons cup. I mean, that would work. <laughs> but you get the idea. You're not getting a moose through there, okay? It stands for something that's impossible. No matter how hard you try, it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor with hyperbole in it intended to communicate, if this isn't clear yet, the impossibility of the situation. How impossible it is, impossible for rich people to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You see, now wait a second, I know some rich people 
who love Jesus. And I would agree with you because here's the rest you need to remember. It's also impossible for poor people to come and inherit eternal life. It's impossible for weak people to inherit eternal life. It's impossible for strong people to inherit eternal life. It's impossible for young people and old people. It's impossible for any of us to inherit eternal life. And that's why this shocking statement is met by this reaction. Jesus says it's impossible. And the people say to him, then who can be saved? If this rich guy can't be saved, who can be saved? Because they knew it isn't that it's hard to be saved. It's that it's impossible. You can't do anything to earn your salvation, to overcome the chasm that exists between you and God. And that's why Jesus then replies to this question, who can be saved? Verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The exclusive offer is this, only Jesus can save. Only the blood of Christ can pay the penalty of our sin. Only the resurrection of Jesus Christ can give us new life. There is no other way. It's an exclusive offer. So listen, if, if that's before you, you, you've had the meeting, you've had the discussion, you, you've, you've done the cost-benefit analysis, you realize the exclusivity of the offer, sign the contract. Sign the contract with Jesus. That's what's in front of all the people as they're listening to him at this point. Now Peter steps up to say what Peter always says, to miss the point on behalf of everyone, something Peter was so exceptionally good at. Verse 28, see, we've left our homes and followed you. What's Peter really saying? Well, it's a bit of a positive statement. There is a sense here that they have, you know, done the thing that Jesus was saying here to follow him. But you also see a little bit of pride of performance in what Peter is saying. In other words, he's kind of saying, we've earned our salvation. We did what the rich dude couldn't do. We've followed you in this way. We've made the sacrifices I mean, they're willing to admit that riches can hinder a person's ability to get into the kingdom, but they haven't drawn the line yet to other kinds of works-based righteousness. Somehow they still think that their sacrifice of leaving home and family to follow Jesus, of setting aside their careers, has earned them something with them. Now, to be fair to them, we use the word sacrifice, and Peter's like, he's kind of trumpeting his own sacrifice. We did it. Look how much we've sacrificed for you. To be fair to them, they haven't yet seen the sacrifice that Jesus is going to make. We have the advantage of looking back and going, look what Jesus did. I mean, anything I could possibly bring is going to be like nothing. 
compared to him dying on the cross and shedding his blood, comparing to the, the, the pain that existed between father and son in the moment that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The horrors of the crucifixion. Would we ever compare anything that we would sacrifice to that? Well, so Peter doesn't have that advantage yet, so we'll give him a pass on that. Yes, they signed the contract to follow him, but they, they don't quite fully get what it's all about, whereas we do. So let's focus on signing the contract. Let's focus on ensuring that we've made the commitment to following Jesus and having made it, that there's nothing in the way of persevering in it. And when I was thinking about this passage, I got to thinking about the Apostle Paul and his testimony and what he said many years after signing the contract and living for Christ. This is what he said. In fact, you can turn to this in Philippians chapter 3 because it acts, Philippians chapter 3 kind of acts like a, like a commentary on this section in Luke's gospel. Philippians 3, 7 to 11. And Paul, you got to remember, he's like the best Jewish man around he had the right pedigree, he had the right education, he was a man of influence, he understood the scriptures, he was a very scholarly, influential, powerful person within the Jewish community. And then he met Christ on the road to Damascus and, and, and many years later he, he says this, this is Philippians 3, 7 to 11, but whatever things were gained to me, my pedigree, my education, my influence, my knowledge, my zealousness, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish." Paul did the cost-benefit analysis. He put eternal life over here, and he put his pedigree, his education, his influence, he put it all over here. And he saw that having Christ was of infinite value compared to anything he could ever bring to the table. He counted them rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Look, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, it's nothing I'm doing, it's not keeping the commandments, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I imagine, what if the rich man had done this? What if he had put eternal life here and put all his riches here and heard the word of Jesus? And what if he had cashed out? What if he had taken it all out of the bank? What if he had walked into the streets of Jerusalem and just handed it out to poor people and then followed Jesus? What if he had seen that the weight of the glory of eternal life was of infinite value? And his riches were as nothing. What if he counted them as lost? What if he thought they were rubbish? What a different story it would be. 
Some of you need to make that decision. You need to sign the contract with Jesus. You need to see that this life holds nothing for you. And Christ holds everything. You need to stop delaying. Stop flirting with the world. And give your life to Christ. And some of you who have already signed the contract are on the path to the loss of your profession of faith, the abandoning of the faith because you're continuing to allow things of this world to hold greater value in your eyes than they should and they're getting in the way of you persevering in your walk with Christ. Don't let anything creep back in Surrender it all to Jesus. Don't let anything get in the way. Don't let anything threaten your faith. Well, if you've signed and if your life is showing evidence of that, if you're truly following Jesus unattached to anything that this world offers, then notice this finally, you will receive an unmatched return on the investment. This is why you meet with a financial planner. I'm going to invest this much, and I want there to be a massive return at the end. I want to be able to retire at this age. I want to have uh, something to show for my investment. And Jesus said, verse 29, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. I mean, that sounds like an extreme. That sounds even more valuable than the riches that the rich man was being asked to give up. So we're putting all of that on the cost side. No one who's given up all of that Verse 30, who will not receive many more times in this time, abundant life here, and in the time to come, the age to come, eternal life. Whatever you've given up, you'll have a better life now and eternal life later. And how can anyone not see that this is an unmatched return on their investment? How could anyone continue to hold on to their sin, their addiction, their unhealthy relationship, the possessions that they have? Jesus' offer of himself is for many times more whatever you think you have now. And yet the man walked away sad because he was uber rich and he couldn't bring himself to cash out his earthly wealth in order to cash in on what could have been his heavenly wealth. Don't walk away sad. Do the cost-benefit analysis. Sign the contract. Give your life to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I would, um, first of all, thank you uh, for words again that penetrate our hearts and leave us no room to wiggle out of it. And I pray, God, that every one of us in this room, Father, I would pray for those especially who have not yet surrendered their life to Christ that this moment, this day, would be the time when they sign the contract and become a follower of Christ. And Father, for all of us in the room, it's, 
It's so tempting to give our hearts to things that would draw us away from you. The world is so alluring. And Father, I pray that nothing would hinder the walk of any person in this room who already professes faith in you. God, that we would be quick to turn our hearts away from these things and back to you. That, Father, if there are things that need to be repented of in this moment, before this day is out, God, that we would be on our knees and in tears surrendering these things to you. So, Father, thank you for hearing this prayer, for being patient with us, and for the word that you've given to us today. I pray in Christ's name.